at the end of our series on First Peter. This is the final sermon on the letter, and I really hope that it's been a blessing to you all to go through this great letter. First uh, Peter is perhaps the closest the New Testament comes to a discipleship manual. And uh, I think it is important that we, we note that First Peter has a great deal to say about trouble, about suffering, and suffering for Christ, and having the right attitude towards suffering, an attitude that looks forward to the inheritance that God has for us, and also uh, relies upon the goodness and the strength of God to get us through hard times. This passage that Steve has just read includes this uh, benediction in verses 10 and 11. Well, benediction come doxology. And then these, uh, these words of farewell uh, from Peter and his compatriots to uh, these churches. Remember, in chapter 1, this is a, a letter that's written to a, a group of churches and a group of uh, different and disparate Christians, probably mainly Jewish Christians, scattered throughout uh, the diaspora in the ancient world. The, uh, the passage itself, you know, it kind of, it, 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 I suppose you could say it fritters out somewhat in verses 12 through 14 because it is speaking to um, you know, people that he knows and, and uh, just saying farewell to everyone. There are, though, a few important things that are within it, I think, that need to be addressed. First of all, verse 13 speaks about Babylon. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. So what is Babylon here? What is Babylon? Well, it's very difficult, actually, to uh, come to a clear understanding of what Babylon is. My uh, preferred understanding is that this is indeed Babylon, you know, the ancient city of Babylon. There are many commentators, most commentators, not that they're always right, who say, now, this is not Babylon, this is, uh, this is actually Rome that he's speaking about here. And there are some arguments for that. For example, it is true that Babylon at this time, the time that Peter was writing in the 60s AD, that, uh, that Babylon really wasn't much of a city at all. There was not much going on there, and it was not a place where Jews particularly were welcome. There was a small Jewish settlement there, but nothing like in, uh, in previous centuries. So that's one reason that they use, and I think that's, you know, that's at least worth logging away. But it's also possible, because he was the apostle to Israel, that he went to Babylon and went to Jews who were there. After all, we do know that a few hundred years later, 
the standard document of Judaism, what became modern Judaism, the Talmud, came from Babylon. And so there must have been enough of a Jewish presence there for that to grow into the kind of uh, learned center that would produce that voluminous work. It's like 33 very plodding volumes. But whoever it is, and whatever it's referring to, these saints, these people greet the diverse saints that Peter is writing to here. And he adds here Silvanus, this is Silas, by the way, who you know from Paul and Silas in the book of Acts. This Silvanus is just his Latinized name. And also Mark, look at Mark in verse 13. That's the author of the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark, most people agree, and I think this can be uh, verified, the Gospel of Mark is basically Peter's account of Jesus and his time with Jesus, written down by Mark, John Mark. And so it's not surprising to hear about Mark being with Peter. Then we have verse 14, which is kind of awkward for modern Westerners, isn't it? Greet one another with a kiss of love. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're supposed to be going around kissing each other nowadays? It doesn't. As an Englishman, I'm very glad that I can say that. Okay? Um, because that would be a difficult one for me to get over, okay? But culturally, this was an important thing in, not just in the Jewish world, but in the ancient world generally, you would kiss somebody to show affection towards them, to show uh, a, at least a brotherly love towards them. Usually, you would kiss them on the mouth, that's the way that it was normally done back in the ancient world. You know, you think, oh, like Russians kissing on the cheek and so on. Nah, not generally. It was kissing on the mouth that was done. Okay, so um, you, some people want to get really literal with the Bible, and I'm all, all for getting literal with the Bible, but uh, sometimes you can get hyper-literal. Uh, but I wonder how many Christians want to get this literal you know, that you're actually going around kissing other Christians on the lips and getting away with it. Uh, obviously, the idea is that you greet one another in a loving, brotherly, sisterly fashion, that there is that affection, there is that bond of fellowship and closeness with Christians uh, that you show, you show... When you greet them, you don't greet them coldly. You greet them in an informal and loving way. And that, I hope, is what we want to always have here at Agape Bible Church. We boast that we do, but we need to always make sure that that's what we're doing. It doesn't just come about because we have a name that says Agape, okay? We might have a name for it and not live up to that. So please uh, make it your business. I'll try to make it my business to greet one another 
in a brotherly and a sisterly loving way. Look out for those people that you haven't greeted for a while. Look out for new people that you haven't spoken to. Make sure you go to them and speak to them. If you feel a bit awkward about it, you can at least shake their hands and tell them that they're welcome. Tell them your name. And so even that, verse 14, has great practical uh, import for us. But I want to turn our attention mostly to what Paul says in uh, verses 10 and 11 and somewhat in verse 12. May the grace of all, may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He calls God, by way of finishing off his letter, the God of all grace. The God of all grace. And so I think it behoves us to ask again, what is the grace of God that he's speaking about? What is this grace of God that God supplies? Several times in First Peter, Peter speaks of this in a functional way. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 13, for example, Peter writes this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a a very interesting way of speaking about grace, because it's obviously talking about future grace, isn't it? Yes, the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus returns. Well, how can you rest upon something that's not here, that's future? You do that because you can rest upon the truth that it's going to happen. You can rest upon the hope that it is secure for you. And therefore, you don't have to worry about what the future is going to bring. It is going to bring you good. It is going to bring you blessings. It is going to bring you happiness in the true sense of that word, peace, in the true sense of that word. God has put that away for you, and he will deliver it to you when Jesus returns. You are his, you're safe in him. He hasn't forgotten about you. His thoughts are always upon you. And therefore, you can rest secure in that knowledge. That God's grace, God's goodness will be supplied to you at that time in its fullness. And then in chapter 4 and verse 10, we read a slightly different use of the term. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The manifold grace of God. Manifold in two ways. Manifold in diverse ways. The grace of God comes to us in various ways to supply the needs that we have at any particular moment. Maybe we need strength. Maybe we need encouragement. 
maybe we need chastisement. That could also be the grace of God. Maybe uh, we just need God to open a door for us so that we can get, we can walk through. Maybe he just needs to be gracious to us in, you know, what's going on in our lives. We uh, certainly witnessed this in, in our lives in the last couple of weeks. Um, with our son Martin, he was um, in some straits trying to find a, a job. His car had decided to give up the ghost. And so he borrowed our car, and a week later that decided to give up the ghost too. It wasn't his fault. Well, the first one was. But anyway... <clears throat> uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't his fault. His circumstances meant that he couldn't get to his job. So he got a situation where um, he, he found a place and it was a walking distance from his job. Now, the guy was wondering about whether to give Martin the, the place or not because he's young and he thought, well, I'm not sure if he's going to be responsible and kids nowadays and all of that stuff. And at that time, when the, that debate was going on between them, a friend of Martin's, who happened to live in the same place, came in and said, oh, hi, Martin, and gave a good word to him. Perfect timing. And Martin got the, got the place. That's the grace of God. It's not coincidence. That's the grace of God, you see, working in people's lives in a very uh, active way. So the manifold grace of God. We need to be stewards of it. We need to remember it when it is given to us. And we need to be thankful for it. Use it for what God wants it to be used for. And then finally, In chapter 5 and verse 5, we read this. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you want God's grace to assist you, if you want God's grace to bless you, There's something that you need to do and I need to do. We've got to humble ourselves. We don't want to wait around for God to do that for us, by the way, because that can be a painful exercise. We need to do it ourselves. We need to realize that we have this propensity to put ourselves first, you know, to have this eye trouble where it's I, 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 whether that's, uh, oh, yes, I'm so wonderful and so great or I'm the most important person in the world that kind of eye trouble, or whether it's uh, the other kind of eye trouble. Oh, poor me. I just can't, I just, I'm no good. You know, that kind of eye trouble too. You need to get yourself off the throne of your own life and put Jesus Christ there. Humble yourself so that God can have his rightful place in your life and the grace of God can work in your life. So those are three uh, ways that Peter speaks about the grace of God. And here, as he's finishing off his letter, in speaking of the God of all grace, 
he reminds us of the fact that that grace is available to us in all of its various forms. Then again, I haven't really defined grace yet, have I? We like to define grace as God's unmerited favor, and I think that's a good definition. But it's not a sufficient definition. It's a good definition. Your salvation, by the way, is by grace. Okay? It's unmerited. It's not because of anything that you've done in the past, not anything that you are right now, and not anything that you're going to do in the future. It is the grace of God that through the justice of God in the cross, overlooks your sin and blesses you anyway and draws you into the family of God. But this idea of grace also has the connotation of a gift. So most of you know that Our daughter, our youngest daughter, Anne, okay, she has a name that goes before that. It's Caris Anne. Her full name is Caris Anne, okay? We just call her Anne. But she was a big surprise, okay, to say the least. And uh, so I wanted to mark that occasion by, uh, and she came along, by the way, in in a difficult time in our life. As well, lots of trouble and upheaval and stuff that's going on in our lives as, as happens. And so I wanted to mark that as being special and being positive because the gift of children is a positive thing. It's a blessing. Okay? Our society is like against kids, you know. Well, I'll get two if I can afford them, and, you know, and we plan them out and so on. And we don't see them as blessings. We see them as hindrances. Um, and I'm, that's another sermon. But I wanted to to thank God for that. So uh, we named her Caris, which has this idea of grace, but also of gifts. So that, you know, the gifts of God that are, are spoken about by Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, for example, the, the uh, spiritual gifts, they are charismatic gifts. Yes, from Caris grace or gift and that's another sermon as well we'll get into that another time maybe now because you have this connotation of gift in the word grace it means that God is gifting you grace whenever he is giving it to you And it's interesting that in the ancient world, not that that everything in the Bible is determined by by that, certainly not. I want to give you that impression. But it is interesting that in the ancient world, when somebody gave a gift, it was slightly different in the culture of the time than it is in the West. In the West, it's obviously, it's a free gift, yes, And there's no expectation after that. In the ancient world, it wasn't quite like that. The gift certainly was free. It was gratis, okay? But there was at least a cultural expectation 
that the person who received a gift would be somewhat, at least relationally, in the giver's debt. Do you understand that? I'm not saying that there's, you know, you were tethered to that person. All I'm saying is that by cultural manners, we could call it that, a person who received a gift understood that they were not to just, oh, yeah, well, I'll stick this away somewhere, put it on the shelf and forget about it. They were somewhat connected to the giver. And this is very helpful to understand, I think, this idea of grace in our lives. Because we shouldn't, we shouldn't hold to what's called a cheap grace or a cheap understanding of grace. We should have a, an idea that when God gives his grace to us in whatever form it comes to us, through circumstances, through the comfort of others, through the blessings of the church, through things that happen in our lives, uh, through things that turn out better than we thought that they would, uh, in answers to prayer and all of that, that we don't just say, oh, well, thank you, God, and move on. But that we feel that, okay, we have something now to live up to. And this this goes together very well with what Paul teaches about how we are to live. We are to live in gratitude to God. We are to live in such a way that is a response to the way that God is with us. God wants gratitude, and gratitude in itself is a very positive thing, isn't it? It can often drive away the bitterness and the pain and the, uh, the, uh, the struggle that we sometimes have with life, just having that, that uh, attitude of being grateful. And so grace, therefore, is to be responded to. That's what I want to get across to you. And if we have that idea of receiving God's grace and then checking our lives and checking our spiritual pulses, as it were, and thinking, okay, so... I've received grace from God. I didn't deserve it, but I've received it. How now am I going to respond to that? What does God want me to do now? And it's not some great thing, some deed that he wants you to do usually. It's just, how's my spiritual temperature? How's my prayer life? How's my Bible reading? How's my closeness with God and God's people? Is there something I need to put right? That way, you see, the grace of God becomes something that is a relational thing between you and the God of all grace. And so it's not just given cheaply. It's something that we respond to in gratitude. It is a gift that we are thankful for and that thankful Attitude is reflected in the way that we respond to God. May the God of all grace perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. How is he going to do that? 
How is he going to perfect you, mature you? How is he going to establish you so that you're unmoved, strengthen you, and settle you in his peace? He's going to do it by the gifts of his grace. And he's a God of grace. He's a God of grace. Therefore, we can always go to him for grace. In the book of Philippians, if you will turn to chapter 4 quickly, excuse me. I'm majoring on this first point, by the way. I know I've got two more to come, but don't worry, I'm not going to keep you that long. In Philippians chapter 4, I know it's in the New Testament here somewhere. Here we are. There's a slight twist on this that I want to call your attention to. All of you know verses 6 and 7, yes? Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There's some overlap there with what Peter says at the end of his letter. But a little further down, look at verse 9. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So the peace of God comes to you when you ask for it. Why? Because it comes from the God of peace. Do you see that? The peace of God comes from the God of peace. The grace of God comes from the God of grace. And you need to think of him as a God of grace. Because when you think of him as a God of grace, he's a God, therefore, that you can approach. And you can approach him undeservedly. And when you approach God undeservedly for grace, to help, you're doing what he wants you to do. You're not kind of preparing yourself to come to him. You're coming to him in your need and as you are in order that his grace may rectify you. And yes, you come sometimes in your shame. And yes, you come sometimes in your untidiness or certainly in your unworthiness. And maybe in the filthiness of your sin. But you come to him to get clean. You're not going to somewhere else. You're not stopping so that Satan can whisper in your ear and say, well, you're not good enough to present yourself before God right now. You better wait until you've tidied yourself up somewhat. No, you're going to God because he's a God of grace. You get it, you understand it, and you need it. And so in verse 12, in speaking about Silvanus, he says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is 
the true grace of God in which you stand. So not only can we, not, not only can we get supplies of grace for the different needs that we may have in our lives, but we actually stand in grace. It's like Paul in, in Romans chapter 5, who speaks about us being within the sphere of grace. Paul puts it like this in Romans 5. <clears throat> Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You're within a sphere of grace if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. You stand in grace. Do you see that? Yes. You say, well, I've sinned and, and uh, I've thought uh, unholy thoughts and I've been thinking in a, uh, a selfish or worldly way. Yes, I'm sure. But you are still in that thought life, in those actions you are still living in a world of grace, in a sphere of God's grace. Yes, you need to repent. And you certainly don't take advantage of the grace of God. But there's always space within grace to do the right thing. Do you see? There's never some action, no, some activity, some sacrifice, some cultic thing that you have to do, some work that you have to do in order to get into the grace of God. We are thankful and not as thankful as we should be for the fact that we are surrounded by God's grace. You are not the Christian you ought to be and neither am I, but thanks be to God for his grace that supports us. And he's able to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That's my first point. My next one's only going to take another ten minutes, and that one after that will take about another half an hour, and we'll be done. All right. He says this, and I wish he didn't say this, I wish he didn't say this. But he says in verses 9 and 10, res, uh, uh, sorry, <clears throat> yes, 9 and 10, he talks about resisting Satan, who's going about as a roaring lion. And then he says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood. And then says in verse 10, May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. And why does he have to put that in there? I mean, he was doing so well. It was all positive, wasn't it? Okay? And then he has to throw that in there after you've suffered for a while. Well, suffering's not pleasant. It's very unpleasant. And the kind of suffering and persecution he's talking about here is not something that's going to stop today or tomorrow, probably. It's something that has to be endured. You know, we are very, very 
blessed to live in the country that we live in rather than in Nigeria or Pakistan or India or China. Do you realize that? Where Christians are persecuted for their faith. Peter was persecuted for his faith. These people to whom he's writing were likewise persecuted. And Peter here, because he has his eyes on the future, because he has his eyes on glory, and a time when all of the tears will be wiped away, and there will be no more crying, and there will be no more pain, he says that we suffer for a little while. There is a time when our suffering will be, verse 10, finished. There will be an after for our times of sufferings. There will be an after where we can look back, if we want to look back, upon those sufferings, but we will never need to look forward for those sufferings again because they won't come again. They won't be there again. We will move forward into a time and into a kingdom where there will be no more suffering of any kind. And so, therefore, this little while that we suffer, and suffering always has a purpose, even though it doesn't seem to have a purpose. It has a purpose because God counts it. God looks upon it and God values it. And God makes it have purpose, makes it have value, makes it have a result, especially if we've responded to it by calling upon him. We know that at some point that suffering stops and God will perfect us, establish us, strengthen us, and settle us, settle us in his peace. Into, third point, eternal glory. Verses 10 and 11. He called us to his eternal glory. That's so easy for us to forget. It's so easy for us to get off, you know, onto some other subject. That's, that's kind of consuming our attention right now. But this for Peter, this for Paul, this for Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, this was the thing that, that, uh, was the overwhelming thought of his life. Eternal glory. I've many times stood up here and recommended to you that you read the Pilgrim's Progress, haven't I? Okay? I won't ask you how many of you have picked it up. Okay? But pick up the Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan. The Pilgrim, when he, when he's doing his best, despite all of the difficulties and the traps and the problems and the enemies and the diversions that he has along the way, he sticks on the way because he knows he's going somewhere. 
You see, that's what Bunyan is saying. I'm leaving this behind and I'm going to the celestial city. And eventually he gets there. And he's welcome there. He has the papers. He has the certification. He's a citizen. He belongs there. You belong as a citizen of heaven in eternal glory. So think about that. Think about your path. Think about your journey. Your journey is different than mine. But we're all on the same road. We're all going to the same place. And we'll all gather there one day. Look back, as it were, upon this life. Thank God that he brought us by his grace all the way through it and look with great anticipation and joy upon the new journey, the eternal journey that God will put us on. Why is this the case? Well, because the grace of God does not give up once we're over the line, as it were, in this life. The grace of God is to be showered upon us in its fullness in the eternal state. How do I know that? Well, that's the subject of another sermon. But it can be summed up in these words. Because we serve, we worship, and are beloved by the God of all grace. Let's pray together. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, by reminding us that we receive your grace, Lord, and sometimes we do not notice. We do not even thank you for it sometimes. You know, Lord, we can get distracted and things can knock us down. Things can hurt us. Things can grab our attention. But, Father, we should get up always and look afresh to you, expecting your grace, expecting that you'll meet us where we need you to meet us, expecting that even though the journey may be difficult, By the grace of God, we are who we are and we'll get to where we need to go. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for being such a Father to us, being such a God to us, because you are the God of all grace. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Our benediction today is from 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.